Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is our continuing series on the traditionalist movement, 1964 to the present. And this is episode three, which I'm calling Rebel Priests, 1964 to 1978. Last time, last episode, we dealt with the early lay movement for trying to retain the old Roman uh, liturgy in the Catholic Church and the traditionalist movement, that aspect. This time we're going to be talking about the clerical opposition to the change in the liturgy and other changes after Vatican II. And what we're getting at here is a little different, because we have to talk about about the dynamics of this is is a little different, between laymen and clergy, which one of the reasons I split this up into two episodes. Uh, Laymen aren't bound by the same level of of obedience, of course, uh, to bishops, Although we all are, of course. And, uh, of course, things change. We left off last time talking about when the official implementation of the new Mass took effect in the early 1970s. And what happens is, as you're going to see, you know, we mentioned last time Paul VI issued this apostolic constitution. He clearly intended the new Mass to become the norm for the Church. And... By 1976 or so, there's an official line coming from most bishops' conferences, most bishops from the Vatican, and it's basically that the old Mass is done. It's been done away with. Uh, it's over with. And I say official line because this type of this type of statement comes not from the Pope himself, but through other authorities, usually speaking in his name, or trying to speak in his name, or in the name of the Second Vatican Council. For example, and, and to give you an idea of just how open they are, by the way, about what a break this is with the past, in 1976, uh, one of these liturgical reformers, a man named Joseph Gelinu, uh, if, you if you've been a cantor before at your parish, if you go to a Novus Ordo parish, you may recognize that name. He wrote a series of psalm tones for the new liturgy, and he had no doubts about what had happened uh, with the, the coming of the new missal. This is a quote from a book he wrote in 1976, The Liturgy Today and Tomorrow. Make no mistake about it. To translate is not to say the same thing with other words. It is to change the form. If the form changes, the rite changes. It must be said, without mincing words, the Roman rite, uh, as we know it, uh, no longer exists. As we knew it, no longer exists. It has been destroyed. And he goes on to say it would not be right to identify this liturgical renewal with the reform of rights decided on by Vatican II, unquote. Other words, this was a break with the past, uh, in Gelinu's mind. And uh, and so this is the, the, uh, the official line of the liturgical establishment, we'll call it, like people like Gelinu. But also even more formal authorities around the Vatican. In 1975, the um, Secretary Romano, the official newspaper of the Vatican, issued... Uh, a statement uh, issued a, uh, had an article about um, about the liturgy, which chastised traditionalists uh, who were in Rome that year, going on a pilgrimage, and lamented their uh, their refusal to quote fall into line with present dispositions in the in the church unquote. The same thing with uh, uh, people in the uh, in the Vatican itself, the Congregation for Divine Worship, and Balbonini. Uh, 
complained about in his memoirs, those who, uh, quote, had difficulty coming to grips with the new order of things, unquote. And here everyone thought that, you know, the Second Vatican Council had been a pastoral council. And you had people talking like it had been some sort of revolution or something. And in fact, Vatican officials despised traditionalists. Um, they saw them all as people acting in bad faith. They didn't really care about the liturgy. They just hated them, hated authority, hated the Second Vatican Council. Uh, they wanted to undermine the Pope's authority. And they conflated all of them together with the most extreme traditionalists who said things like the new mass was Protestant, that it was heretical, that it was invalid. And yes, so, some were saying all three, and all three of these things are wrong. Uh, but they didn't make any distinctions. They just sort of swept them all under the rug. But the key thing to note here is that no papal or Vatican statement ever gave a theological rationale for the suppression of the old missile. Um, as opposed to, by the way, progressive theologians and liturgists who like running their mouths, but not any official statements. And I should, and I should mention that this uh, line of argumentation uh, about the liturgy is propagated to this day by professional liturgists in, you know, official, uh, you know, theology theology departments, uh, uh, Catholic universities, um, you know, uh, different you know liturgical liturgical commissions in the Vatican or in bishops' conferences or in diocesan or in diocesan um, institutions, and these people defend the new right and the suppression of the old one both for ideological or theological reasons, but also practical reasons, because almost all of these institutions were created as a result of having to implement the new liturgy. In other words, not only do they have, you know, um, <coughs> ideological reasons for opposing, for wanting to get rid of the old rite, they also would be out of a job if it wasn't for the creation of a new liturgy in the first place. So they're doubly invested in this stuff. Moreover, this what I'm calling this official line. Official in the sense that you have officials using it. It's not necessarily what the church teaches. They're not identical. This official line also equated, and still does in many ways, opposition to the new mass or opposition to the suppression of the old one with opposition to the council, which is a claim that does not hold up to scrutiny. Sacro, uh, Sanctum Concilium, the... Uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, issued by the Second Vatican Council, says in its fourth paragraph, and I quote here, quote, In faithful obedience to tradition, the Sacred Council declares that Holy Mother Church holds all lawfully acknowledged rights to be of equal right and dignity, that she wishes to preserve them in the future and to foster them in every way. The Council also desires that, where necessary, the rights be revised carefully in the light of sound tradition, unquote. Nothing about suppressing the old Roman Missal in that. Quite the opposite. It says to be preserved. The Council Fathers uh, celebrated Mass according to the old Roman Missal all throughout the Council. They simply did not envision getting rid of it. And if yes, of course, we'll come to this in the, the course of this and future episodes. Yes, there are other things besides the Lydia. There, there are, you know, the traditionalists have theological issues with the Second Vatican Council to a certain degree. Depends on which traditionalist you're talking about. We'll get to that, but I, but that's a different matter, uh, a little more difficult. 
there really is no debate about this in the liturgy. And so one of the things I want to emphasize here is that there's actually a lot of confusion in the 1970s and even today about what Paul VI did when he issued his apostolic constitution creating the new mass. Because it clearly, clearly stated that he wanted to become the new norm for the church. But it just doesn't say anything about suppressing the old one. The only people who do that are individual bishops and bishops' conferences. And in fact, the only official notice that the old mass was to be suppressed came from the Vatican, uh, from two notes issued by the Congregation for Divine Worship in 1971 and 1974 in its magazine called Notitiae, stating that the old mass can no longer be celebrated except by old priests without congregations. However, uh, to abrogate a liturgy as old as, uh, as uh, the old rite is, that most people agree that has to come from the Pope himself. And in fact, the Congregation for Divine Worship toyed with getting a definitive ruling from the Pontifical Commission on the Interpretation of Legislative Texts, which is a body that rules on stuff in the Vatican. Uh, but it refrained from doing so. Uh, and it did so because, according to Annabelle Bonini in his uh, memoirs of the liturgical reform, that they were afraid of being seen as, quote, casting odium on the liturgical tradition, unquote. Which is revealing because, you know, if you're going to destroy something and get rid of it, that does kind of mean you're casting odium on it, doesn't it? And as far as I can tell, besides all this, Paul VI never issued any further clarification as to why the old mass needed to go. He just said it needed to go and you should obey, that's it. And there's good reason for this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because the only reason I can think of to justify getting rid of the old rite is this. You'd have to say that there was something fundamentally wrong with the old liturgy in theological terms. That somehow it expressed some sort of theological error about the faith. But doing this would be effectively saying that the, Christ that the church's worship had been corrupted, fundamentally corrupted, for centuries on end. And this would basically mean effectively denying the church's indefectibility. If you don't know what indefectibility means, it means that the Holy Spirit abandoned the church to error in its worship. In other words, this isn't a Catholic critique of the old liturgy. It's a Protestant one, basically. Which, to be sure, many Catholic theologians like to say things like this. But liberal bishops uh, are a lot more careful of coming out and saying this. Uh, as was Pope Francis in uh, Traditionis Custodes. Uh, although his his you know um, remarks about it uh, you know fostering division clearly implied there's something wrong with the old rite, but because they don't want to be seen as making a break with the past, they just want to insinuate it. The defenders of this suppression uh, are are kind of coy about it to a certain degree, and never give reasons. I mention this because as a result of this uh, coyness, but also all the multiple authorities involved in this implementation of the new liturgy, you have a lot of confusion on the ground as to just to what's going on. The Pope's issuing statements, the Concilium's issuing statements, the Congregation of Divine Worship issues statements, the Secretary of State gets involved in this, bishops' conference issue, conferences issue statements, individual bishops issue statements about this. 
Adding to this confusion, the Pope, as we've seen in the case of the English indult, or the Agatha, Agatha Christie indult, issues exceptions to it, exemptions from it, I should say. Not just to England as a whole, but to different bodies. Opus Dei, for example. Uh, Jose Maria Escriva got an exemption, as I guess keep saying the old mass. Certain individual bishops were given uh, exemptions. So again, all this creates confusion about what exactly is going on. Which, of course, is on top of the either refusal to or the inability of the bishops, the pope, to stop liturgical abuses at the other end of the spectrum, the progressive end of the spectrum, as we've talked about uh, uh, already. Combined with one other big, huge problem, actually, one of the things that they almost immediately did, all these bishop conferences when they began implementing the new liturgy, they automatically translated these things into the vernacular. They made no attempt to retain Latin as the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy uh, <coughs> called for. They just translated them all into the vernacular overnight. And what happened was, of course, many of these translations were not very accurate. They did not reflect the original Latin text of the new Missal. And so, in the translation of the original Latin text, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Eucharistic prayer in the New Rite, uh, when it's when it's talking about praying for you know salvation in the Eucharistic prayer, you may have heard this, remember this, uh, the word promotis, which means for many. Again, this is the, the prayer I can't remember off the top of my head. Christ gave his life uh, for him and for many, for you and for many, basically. Which, of course, got translated in the English translation as to for all. Which, of course, could be taken to imply some sort of universal salvation. And this led some people, some traditionalists, to believe that this con con consecration was heretical and therefore invalid. And again, you don't have to agree with that critique to understand just the, just the sort of distress these sorts of things cause. This wasn't changed, by the way, until 2011. If you're young enough to, uh, to be listening to this and you don't remember any of this stuff, you'll remember this. You remember how you used to say in the Mass, um, uh, the Lord be with you and also with you, <laughs> and now we say, uh, the, uh, the Lord be with you and with your, with your spirit? That's because it more faithfully reflects the Latin, original Latin text of the New Missal. They only changed it in the early 2000s. <laughs> So that's why you have some of these traditionalists becoming paranoid and saying, you know, attacking the council or attacking the liturgy. One of the reasons, yes, they shouldn't have done this. It's bad. But I don't think people quite grasp the level of confusion that's going on. And so it's into this sort of confused gray area legally about the new mass that you will get a sort of, I'm going to call it a sort of traditionalist underground <laughs> springing up in places, America, to a lesser extent, you're by no more, more about America. I'm thinking, by the way, as almost like a parallel with the old 1970s radical underground, you know, people who were on the run from the FBI in the 1970s. <clears throat> what happens is, you know, people, priests who don't like the changes will retire and laity will seek them out. Uh, say, hey, you're retired, you can still say this Mass, technically speaking, they'll go on, you know, they'll have Mass in rented halls, in hotel conference rooms, in basements, in mobile homes, wherever they can find it. 
And so you'll have people, um, you know, still saying the Mass in a sort of furtive, clandestine way. You'll even have sort of new communities spring up around this. Well, one of the most intriguing, I'll give you some examples from North America. Most intriguing is a place up in Ottawa, Canada called St. Clement's Parish. And St. Clement's was actually a parish that got a, a permission from their bishop in 1968 to continue saying the old Mass which they did until 1974 when the Vatican ordered them to say to stop doing it. And so they had to, they'd switched over and started saying the new one in Latin until they switched back when they changed things under John Paul II and Benedict XVI. In Pittsburgh, you had a group of laity who actually created their own little Latin mass community on the north side of Pittsburgh. They began, you know, rescuing altars uh, um, I rescued an altar from uh, the, you know, out of the, the trash heap, basically, from where liturgical reformers had thrown it out, started meeting in their own homes, eventually got retired priests to help them out, started actually raising money, and they, you know, found their own places to, to worship. They even flew in priests from other parts of the North, Northeast to help them celebrate. In the mid-1960s, they eventually uh, had enough money pooled, had enough people to purchase an old Orthodox church. And they became, uh, well, they gave themselves the name Our Lady of Fatima uh, and eventually had their own priest during all this period of confusion. They, they still exist, by the way. Our Lady of Fatima is still in Pittsburgh. Uh, in in uh, Kentucky, a priest named Francis Hannafin, early 1960s, decided he wanted no part of the reform. He retired with his faculties intact. Uh, he bought a piece of lamb with a mobile home on it, made a chapel out of it, and people started coming. <laughs> so you get these little sort of Latin mass communities springing up uh, across the states, and I presume I don't know as much about Europe. It must have happened to a certain extent there as well. And so that's one dynamic. You do have other priests more willing to openly do this, and I'll mention a few of these before we get to the um, the big hitter in all this, which is the SSPX. <laughs> but the, actually the first person to really challenge the, the whole... Uh, liturgical change was um, well actually the man who gives a name I guess to, to this to this opposition to the changes that happened after the council traditionalist movement as a, uh, a priest named Father Gomar de Pau and Gomar de Pau was a was a Belgian uh, by birth he was born in Belgium had ancestors who had fought on the side of the Americans in the American Revolutionary War in World War II he served as a chaplain and a medic was captured at the Battle of Dunkirk, 1942, but escaped, and later on served as chaplain to the armies that liberated Belgium from the Nazis. Eventually, he completed his studies at Louvain before moving to the United States, where he had family, earned a doctorate in canon law from CUA, and from 1962 to 1965, he became the dean of the seminary at Mount St. Mary's uh, in uh, Emmitsburg, Maryland. Beautiful place, if you haven't been there. As he became a respected seminary dean and canon law teacher. And what's interesting about him is he was actually tabbed to be a paratus. A paratus is a theological advisor to a bishop. To uh, a, a bishop, uh, I don't have his full name here, unfortunately, Bishop Kurtz, a German bishop, a German-born bishop, uh, who had been a Franciscan missionary evicted from his missionary diocese in China in 1949 by the Communist Revolution. And so he brought DePau with him to the, the council in 1964, which he was all for. 
What happened was, as soon as he got bumped back home to Maryland, the Powell apparently reacted really badly against the imposition of vernacular in 1964. Remember in 1964 you had this um, preliminary permission given by the Pope to start making changes. And I, I recall last time we talked just about how it was almost overnight this happened. And what happened is you had these liturgists who'd been waiting for this. They'd actually produced, you know, well before the council had decided on this, their own pamphlets, their own literature, their own booklets for the Mass, uh, anticipating this stuff so they could take advantage of it. And this apparently freaked him out, uh, something fierce. Uh, and it led him in, in uh, December, just a month or so later, to... Uh, to issue a, a to issue a, a a manifesto, actually, it's a, a letter he wrote to all the bishops in the Vatican, to the Pope, to all the bishops in the United States uh, on December thirty first, nineteen sixty four, basically listing a list of grievances regarding the new liturgy, and it claimed a number of things. I won't go through all of this. You can find this stuff on the internet, but it claimed that. Um, you know, these, you know, changes of the Mass were introduced without, as he says, the average, average Catholic man and woman being consulted. It claims that these liturgical changes were not called for by public opinion, but were, in his words, quote, extorted from our bishops by a small but well-organized minority of self-appointed so-called liturgical experts. And he says quite clearly that they they recognize uh, the the advantages of, of some use of, of the vernacular in the celebration of the Mass, but they also want to retain at the same time um, the use of Latin. And uh, he's quite clear in this. He makes this clear that he thinks the reforms introduced in 1964 are in defiance of the Second Vatican Council and not in obedience to it. And he actually calls for, among other things in this manifesto, a halt any further use of the vernacular to uh, basically, you know, rein in some of the pervasiveness that's happened since this is only 1964. That council's still ongoing. Um, and they ask specifically for the old uh, Latin form of mass to be retained. And what happens is, is this, uh, this uh, letter gets uh, leaked to the press in March of 1965. And what's going to happen is the press is going to label, label him the rebel priest because he's allegedly going against the council, which he never, he, is, he was a paratist there. He was in supporter of it. In, uh, and so he begins to, to form what he calls the Catholic traditionalist movement, which is, it's basically just him and a bunch of, a few lay supporters as far as I can tell. But it draws the attention of his cardinal, who in 1965, July of that year, fires him as dean of Mount St. Mary's Seminary and orders him to return to Baltimore as a priest. He um, was you know, basically going around trying to defend what he was doing, uh, partly with the help of uh, Bishop, uh, Cardinal Spellman of New York. In response, Bishop Kurtz, the, the man he'd acted for as an apparatus at the council, tried to have him incarnated, uh, incarnated into his Roman diocese as a, as a priest, and then let him reside in New York. Uh, but Sheehan, Cardinal Sheehan of, of Baltimore and his allies in Rome tried to block this for several years. Eventually, he found a chapel in Westbury, New York, and set up shop there um, and incorporated the Catholic traditionalist movement as a nonprofit in 1968. He wrote a defense of his conduct in 1967 called The Rebel Priest, the rebel in quotation marks, because he didn't think he'd been a rebel. Uh, this is something he says in that little, that little uh, booklet there, pamphlet, The Rebel Priest, is that 
I'm doing the, exactly the same thing I was doing before the council. How is everything I'm doing now wrong? Uh, I'm not opposed to vernacular. I'm not really, there's something wrong with it, but we want to retain Latin, just as a, the Second Vatican Council said it should be retained. And he actually sent a letter, a private letter to Paul VI in 18, 1967 as well, begging him to roll back the reforms, but to no avail. Um, but he's an interesting character, Gomar de Pau. And by the way, this still exists. He passed away in 2005. Uh, you can still visit uh, the Ave Maria Chapel up at Westbury, New York. Uh, and his, uh, his supporters have a website where they have, this is where I got some of this information from. They're a little protective of his legacy, to say the least. Uh, but he deserves credit. He's the first person to notice that something went wrong <laughs> with this whole reform right away. And a lot of the criticisms he makes in his little manifesto and his little uh, um, pamphlet, uh, they hold up pretty well. Uh, he has a lot of good points to make, a lot of points that will be reiterated by traditionalists later on. He deserves a little more credit among traditionalists, I think, for, uh, for what he did, although he didn't seem to have that much influence uh, outside of that initial burst of uh, tension he got. But he was left alone, as were some of these. You also have a second group being founded in the early 1970s, slightly different, <clears throat> called the Ortho Orthodox Roman Catholic Movement. And this was found, founded by a couple of men, uh, a couple of priests. One, Francis Fenton, the one Richard McKenna, who was a Dominican. And this is a little different here, partly because of who Francis Fenton was. Uh, he was a priest in Connecticut, and lay Catholics approached him in 1970 uh, about saying the old mass, and he eventually gathered several other like-minded priests around him uh, who started saying Masses in Connecticut and then uh, elsewhere. In addition to giving lectures on the present, what they called, crisis in the church. And so by 1975, seven priests said uh, Masses, uh, along with Fenton in this group they formed, uh, despite severe criticism. Uh, and in fact, uh, he remained a good priest in good standing, as far as I'm aware, to the end of his days. Uh, partly because, as one bishop explained in a, uh, in a newspaper article in 1977, they didn't want to give him too much attention. So I guess they were too small to matter. But by 1979, this Orthodox Roman Catholic movement uh, was holding occasional masses in 18 cities in 12 states across the United States, as well as eight regular Sunday masses in six states, conducted by 11 priests. So you do have this sort of circuit of underground masses going on. And I mentioned why this is a little different We'll see next time, we'll go into more detail, but Francis Fenton was a little more political than pretty much every figure I'm gonna talk about here. He was a member in the 1960s and 70s of the John Birch Society. If you don't know what this is, this was a really radical, anti-communist right-wing society in the 1960s and 70s, which you know opposed things like the Civil Rights Movement. So he was controversial for that reason as well. I'll talk more about him as we go forward because they'll have something to do with some of the antics of the traditionalist movement in the early and late 70s, but so you have this going on. Then finally, one last example of this, uh, again, this is these individual priests willing to resist this imposition of, of the official church, I guess, in doing all this stuff. And uh, the man who uh, I'm going to talk about here briefly is Yves Normandin, who is a, a Quebecois, uh, a French-speaking Catholic priest up in uh, Quebec in Canada. In Montreal, who, um, when the reform came in the early 70s, said Mass and the, the new Mass like every other, but 
under the influence of writers like Louis Saint and the influence of Marcel Lefebvre, which we'll get to in a moment, and others, he began, he went on a, actually went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. While he was on the way there, he actually visited Marcel Lefebvre at Econ, Switzerland, in a seminary. Again, we'll get to him. But in 1975, at his parish in uh, St. Yvette's in, in Montreal, he decided to start celebrating the Old Mass again, in defiance of his bishop. And I'm mentioning him partly because he has a, a role to play in this. He spends years, well, get to the moment, doing this. But when the bishop demanded he obey, he invoked canon law against him. And he invoked an article, uh, which it's Article 30 in the old canon law code. I think it's Article 28 in the new one. But it's an article which it's of general norms for canon law, which states that for an immemorial custom to be revoked, uh, to be repealed as law in the church, it has to be ev uh, explicitly revoked. In other words, you can't insinuate, or you have to be fairly clear about it. And I mention this because, again, you don't have, again, except for a couple of notes issued by the CDW, you don't have a lot of official stuff coming from the Vatican. And the general idea, and I say this because you, you don't have to buy this. If you're listening to this, you don't like it, whatever. This is one of their arguments, is that, look, only the Pope has the right to do this, but he has to explicitly say so. And so this is one of the big contentions that traditionalists have. So you, you can't do that. You have to come out and say, yes, I hereby abrogate it. Which not even Pope Francis is willing to do in his recent motu proprio. He doesn't go that far. He also invoked did Eve Normandim against his bishop, uh, Pius V's bull, Quo Primum. Quo Primum was the, the bull uh, which accompanied the, the, uh, his revision of the Roman Missal in 1570, which, if you, if you, um, if you know anything about this, uh, it's invoked sometimes because he basically grants the right in perpetuity to say this Mass. Again, that's a little bit different because popes really can't bind future popes like that, not, not in that way. So that's not as big of a target. They make that claim sometimes. I don't think it's as, as strong a claim. I think the canon law claim has a little more to it. Uh, but he also pointed out, of course, as we said before, and he's correct, Paul VI apostolic constitution had not explicitly abrogated the old right. And his bishop was polite with him and, and not cruel or anything, but he refused to budge, refused to talk to him. Uh, and yet Normandine refused to leave his parish while he appealed to Rome. And then so for six months, basically, he held out against his bishop. And the cause became uh, a cause celebre. Uh, it would got uh, inattention internationally because he was sort of, you know, defying his bishop and all this stuff. And the only reason he didn't, uh, it just didn't work out for him was that the archdiocese kind of tricked him. They called him before a diocesan tribunal in 1975, and so he had to go. <clears throat> and while he was gone, archdiocesan employees went into the uh, went into the church and changed the locks, and so they locked him out. And so uh, he became. Uh, he wrote a little pamphlet defending himself as well, which in French he called a priest out in the cold, because he began going on the road. He began driving all over Canada, flying sometimes, saying masses during the week, while saying Sunday mass at a Bavarian brasserie on Sundays in Montreal, a Bavarian uh, cafe, basically, uh, for the next eight years uh, doing this on his own. So it's priests like this uh, who keep the Latin mass alive in this sort of weird um, underground where they're, they are defying their bishops, but there's still more, I think there's more gray area than people want to admit when they talk about this. Again, some people, when they think of traditionalists, they think of it as just bad people who want to disobey, and I think that's unfair. 
And again, even if you don't agree with me, you can at least see things are really weird in the 1970s. They're weird now. They were really weird back then. Now, a couple other things I mentioned before we get to the second half of this, when we talk about the um, the uh, um, the the 800-pound gorilla of the traditionalist movement, is that there were two other places in the world in the 1970s outside of these, these I guess, uh, clandestine, you know, uh, chapels and stuff like this in the West where you could actually, uh, where you could actually <laughs> uh, uh, say the Latin Mass and where it was actually perfectly canonically legal to do so. And one of these is very interesting um, both of these places go through a sort of conciliar time warp because the reforms just don't get implemented there. And one of these takes one of these places is in uh, Brazil, in the Diocese of Campos. And this goes back to the bishop of the Diocese of Campos, a man named Antonio de Castro Maier, or Maier, who was a uh, bishop from the 1940s, was uh, had been uh, a uh, a friend of Plinio Correa de Oliveira, if you remember who this is. This is the founder of Tradition Family Property, this sort of right-wing Catholic social political organization from uh, from Brazil. Uh, he's friends with him. He's uh, he's a bishop at the council. He's friends with Marcel Lefebvre. He is part of that group of international fathers which opposes the more progressive members of the Second Vatican Council during the council. And so he comes out of that sort of, you know, um, counter-revolutionary, I guess, conservative milieu in Brazil. And in 1969, if you recall, last time we talked about the Ottaviani intervention, where you had those theologians critiquing the liturgy. He also writes a critique in the liturgy. He actually writes a letter to Paul VI um, detailing his problems, which are very similar uh, to the ones uh, that you see uh, in the Ottaviani intervention, and begging him not to implement the new right. Paul VI, of course, I don't think responds to him. But what happens is, he goes back to his diocese, which he's, he's been there for a long time. He has his own seminary. He just decides to ignore it. <laughs> uh, he refuses to implement um, the, 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 uh, the new liturgy. He does allow his priests, there are a handful of them who want to do this, who want to say the, say the new liturgy, they do it. But everybody else basically goes on like nothing happened. <laughs> uh, and they keep saying the old mass up until his, his, uh, his uh, retirement in 1981. So for an entire decade, it just, it just, just didn't appear in the Diocese of Campos. And they'll play an interesting role going forward in all this story. Interesting place uh, down in there. So one place ignores the council down in Brazil. The other place, the other place you could actually have this, and this is the only time I'm going to mention anything outside of uh, of the Western world in, the, in these lect in these episodes on the traditionalist movement. Again, I when we talk about the council, when we talk about things here. I know the Western world better than anything else. The dynamics are different for the interaction of both that the new liturgy and the Second Vatican Council outside the West. With this one exception, I have to mention. Um, because the one other place in the in the world where the reforms were never implemented was, of course, you can kind of figure this out, all right? Da, 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 in China, in mainland China. Oh, the irony is of history, because of course the Communist Revolution kicked a lot of the Catholics out of the mainland China. You did have the reforms being implemented in the 1970s in Hong Kong. Um, you know, Macau, places like that, where the church had a presence in what you would call greater China. 
Chinese societies outside of the mainland. But because there was this, if you don't know what the Cultural Revolution was in the 1960s in, in China, you know, Chairman Mao had this destructive Cultural Revolution where he went around, you know, smashing stuff up from, from you know, the old order and all this stuff. It meant that the changes never got implemented in China. And so after he dies in 1976 and Catholics can start to worship again, they have nothing but old liturgical books, and even in their seminaries, they have nothing but old old seminary books to form their, their priest in Latin. So they're still saying the old Latin Mass up until the end of the 1980s in communist China. And in fact, it's only in 1992 uh, uh, when, the, uh, when the bishops of China, mainland China, finally decide to implement the, the, uh, the reforms of Vatican II. So at least for a little while, this didn't actually uh, take place. So in other words, again, the official line wanted to say, well, the Latin Mass, we abrogated it and it's gone. Neither one of those things were technically true, or at least you could debate them uh, in the 1970s. Uh, they hadn't necessarily destroyed it, and it was still a question as to whether or not, A, could the Pope do that? B, had he done that? And do all these other authorities have the right to, to, to you know, prevent you know, lay people and priests from having this older liturgy? So that's the first part of this episode. And so up next we're going to talk about, of course, um, the French side of things. Because, of course, France is the sort of ground zero of the traditionalist movement. And, of course, the birthplace of the Society of St. Pius X. So more on that in a moment. So now we come in the last part of this episode to French traditionalism and the foundation of the Society of St. Pius X. The French traditionalist scene in the 1970s was kind of the wild, wild west of traditionalism for reasons I've already sort of stated. And there was a lot more, there was, oh, there was some anyway elsewhere, but the, the attitude, as you're going to see, is more combative and more, in some ways, extreme in France than you will see elsewhere for historical reasons I've already gone over. I don't want to go back into it. But the criticism of the liturgy and the council begins almost as, uh, as soon as the council begins. Some of the key, I'll just go over some of the key figures here until we get to the, the big player in all, all this, uh, Marcel Lefebvre. But even before the council is over, you have people criticizing it from the more traditional, whatever I call reactionary part of the French church. Uh, the first person I'm aware of is uh, someone named Georges de Nantes, or the Abbé de Nantes, uh, a curate, uh, a priest who was a, a, a reactionary. He really was a reactionary well before the council, even in political terms. He was ordained in 1948, uh, but actually started writing for an Action Française newspaper in 1949 under a pseudonym. And his uh, reactionary politics and attitude got him kicked out of the Diocese of Paris in 1952 for accusing people of being communists. And uh, also got him turned away from a Carmel Carmelite novitiate in 1955. <clears throat> in 1958, he founded his own religious community, the Little Brothers of the Sacred Heart. And yet his opposition to the French government's withdrawal from Algiers from Algeria in 1962 by the de Gaulle government of all things, got him to confined to a seminary by the French government. <laughs> so he was a little bit of a radical anyway before all this started. 
and he began attacking the council in October of 1962 and complaining about its, uh, the things that it was doing. And uh, a year later, 1963, his bishop ordered him to stop. He went to Rome several times over the next uh, few years, but was finally suspended because of his criticisms in 1966. A year later, he founded a bulletin called the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and three years later formed a League of the Catholic Counter-Reformation in 1970, which then began holding conferences and retreats throughout France. And <clears throat> Denault came up with a unique criticism among traditionalists, as far as I'm aware, there are probably others, of Vatican II. He never claimed, he never attacks the legitimacy of the Council at all, um, he says it's a valid council. It's a perfectly legal council. His criticism is of it is that its decrees do not use the traditional formula for binding the faithful. That is, if you go back to the Council of Trent, or First Vatican Council, when the church wanted to teach clearly something was supposed to be binding on the faithful, they would issue a, a, a series of canons, which gave the positive side of, of the, the ledger, and then a series of anathemas, uh, basically declaring anybody be outside the faith if they if they went against them. And so it was clear what it was teaching. And he says because of this reason, these teachings weren't definitive, definitively binding of the council. And therefore, dissent from them did not put one outside the communion of the church. And in fact, what he complained about was Paul VI not using his authority to condemn cons uh, dissent, basically. And in fact, he condemned him so harshly in such harsh terms, he was censured several times by the CDF, uh, for being too harsh with the Holy Father. Though as far as I'm aware, he was never censured, never suspended, never excommunicated, nor uh, were any errors found in his writings. Despite such criticisms, he was also opposed to what he called the schismatic solution to the post-conciliar crisis. And he urged his followers to remain in their parishes. As you'll see, I won't talk about it too much, but he will actually get a, come into conflict with Marcel Lefebvre for obvious reasons. But he, as far as I'm aware, dies in communion with the church, as do his followers, even though they're known to be kind of extreme. And the Catholic Counter-Reformation still exists today in France. It was actually, if that memory serves, it was actually labeled as a cult by the French government, uh, this organization that he set up. So and there you go. <clears throat> Another major figure uh, in this early 1970s is a man named Abbe Quache, who was a parish curate from French Vexan, trained at the French seminary in Rome. Uh, in December of 1964, about the same time Gomar de Pau did this in, in the United States, Father Quache sent a letter to all the priests of the Diocese of Beauvais, in which he denounced, quote, the in modernist invasions in the liturgy and in the faith, unquote. And in fact, he keeps sending this letter <laughs> to all the all the all the uh, priests of the diocese of Belvay. Uh, well, I does it two more times anyway. Nineteen sixty-five and nineteen sixty-seven. <clears throat> and uh, nineteen sixty-seven, he also founds a bulletin called Combat de la Foi, Combat of the Faith, to spread his ideas. The pre year previous, he comes into conflict with his bishop. Uh, he writes an article in a, a magazine, religious magazine in which he uh, talks about the new religion, quote-unquote. He's claiming at this point that the Vatican II has introduced a new religion, a new liturgy. And the article is rebuked um, by his bishop, and it's condemned by the Bishop's Conference of France uh, in 1966. Uh, 1968, he, he uh, issues another um, 
pamphlet with another priest named Noel Barbara, Barbara uh, called Vare Mecum uh, for the Faithful Catholic, which sells several hundred thousand copies. That same year, and he's one of the ones to do this, he's the one I think who, who starts this, <clears throat> he revives the traditional local procession in his parish, I guess according to the older older rite or whatever, against his bishop's uh, orders. He ordered him not to do it, he did it anyway. When the uh, bishop ordered him to stop publishing the next year, 1969, the bishop suspended him, Abba Fisio, from his, from his office as priest. <clears throat> and from there, the Abba Kawash got even more radical. In uh, the early 1970s, he began disrupting masses that he found to be sacrilegious. In 1972, he and some of his followers disrupted a televised mass that was taking place in a cathedral, for example. And in uh, 1973, he went into a, a church and destroyed a piece of artwork by a contemporary artist because he thought it was sacrilegious, a um, piece of artwork in a parish church, and was ordered to pay 1,000 francs in damages for this. And it was the Abbe Quash who was also the instigator by the, behind the first few uh, traditionalist pilgrimages to Rome in 1970-1972, and eventually established one to Lourdes as well. And so he's one of the people that, uh, if you mentioned, I mentioned last time, um, the Annabel Bunini, the reformer secretary of the Concilium, complaining about the traditionalist pilgrims in Rome, calling the new mass heretical and Protestant. Well, that's Abbe Quash. <laughs> he's saying stuff like that by the early 1970s. He also eventually acquires a house and starts a convent for some Franciscan nuns in 1972. Tries to start a seminary, doesn't work out for a variety of reasons, but uh, he is, again, on that little more extreme fringe we're talking about here with, <clears throat> with, uh, with, uh, uh, with the French traditionalist movement. And then finally I come to another figure, another colorful figure in this movement, is a, a very uh, ancient priest in his 80s when this all starts, a man named Father Duco Bourget. Uh, Father Duco Bourget was the, uh, I would call it pastor, <laughs> if you like, of a group of lay faithful who started meeting in 1974 in, a, um, in the basement of a building called the Salle the Wagram, 1974, in Paris. Because the Diocese of Paris would not allow them to meet anywhere to say to, to say the, the the Latin Mass. By this point, of course, the French bishops have tried to forbid it. They've said it's forbidden; you can't do it. Uh, he's a retired priest, so that's one of the reasons why he can get away with this. And um, anyway, he's the sort of leader of what this gets attention in the French media. They, they come to be called the Wagram Rebels because they're rebelling against the diocesan the diocese. And they get a lot of sympathy. There's another there's another priest in London who does this, and he gets sympathetic um, secular coverage uh, from the news media. Uh, makes sense when you think about it in France. The news media, secular media, is kind of anti 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 clerical. So maybe they thought this was a good idea. I don't know. <clears throat> but anyway, um, the number of people coming to this mass every week at this this basement with uh, Father Duco Bourget started growing. So that by 1977, there, according to one uh, Michael Davies, author uh, uh, of a defense of, uh, of Marcel Lefebvre, about over 8,000 people were showing up every week to this mass. So they were in desperate need of a, of a church. 
but they could not get the diocesan authorities to, to talk to them or give them any place to worship. And there are plenty of older churches in the central of Paris where had, you know, a priest and a handful of parishioners basically empty. So what happens is one day, <clears throat> 1977, in the, uh, the church uh, in the, near the center of Paris called Saint-Nicolas du Chardonnay, the priest there was saying mass. There's a couple of priests. There's a handful of parishioners. And all of a sudden, uh, the doors open and a stream of people start flowing into the church. And the priest goes up to him and says, well, it just this number, vast number of people. He says, oh, this is wonderful. Oh, welcome. This is so, I'm so overjoyed that you've come here. And one of the men who just came into the church says, we'll see how joyful you are in a minute. Because <laughs> what happens is, uh, as people st uh, start streaming in, is three priests show up <clears throat> in procession with a cross. Uh, Father Ducot Bourget, Abbe Kouache, and one other priest are leading a procession of their Wagram rebels into the church. And all of a sudden, the, the, the priest of the parish gets dismayed and says, what, why, what are you doing? Why have you come here? <laughs> And uh, the old man, uh, Father Duco Bourget, when I say old man, he's 84 when this happens. And if you ever see a picture of him, he looks just like uh, St. John Vianney, literally a spitting image with the white hair and everything. Anyway, he says to him, what do you, why have you come here? Father Duco Bourget says to him, we have come in nomine domini. <laughs> and they... Um, and they proceed, several thousand of the poor into the church. They take the, the table altar that's in front of the high altar. They take it and put it in the sacristy. And they start saying a mass right there at the high altar. And effectively, they push, they chase the priest and the few parishioners of the parish into the sacristy and lock them out. <laughs> uh, they put people on guard 24 hours a day to keep them out. Within a few days, the, uh, the parish priest and his, his handful of parishioners leave the sacristy, and they, they occupy Saint-Nicolas du Chardonnay. <laughs> and uh, naturally, the diocesan authorities and the parish priest aren't happy about this. They try to get them out. Uh, but the police are very leery about trying to throw them out, partly because, uh, well, if you don't know about French life, <clears throat> the military and the, the gendarmes, the police, are a little more conservative than most people in France. They're loath to do this anyway. Uh, there's also a, a bigger problem that they have, <clears throat> the diocese does, uh, because in France, if you don't know, a law was passed in 1905 nationalizing all church property. So all the churches in, in France are officially owned by the government. And so the diocese couldn't just go in there, call the police, have them take it out. It belonged to the government. And in fact, what happens is the uh, the the parish priest goes back there a couple uh, a couple months after this happened, trying to you know they've been talking to the police and why aren't you doing anything? And they asked for the, the they asked for the police chief and the sergeant on duty told him uh, he's not here right now. He's assisting mass down at Saint Nicolas de Chardonnay. And so a combination of police. Uh, you know, sympathy with the, the the people who took over the church and the the weirdness of this, you know, it's this anti-Catholic laicist law that actually works in their favor. No politician in Paris wanted to cause a ruckus by kicking them out. The, and so they left them there. And so Paul VI uh, tried to get intervene with the Bishop of Paris, Bishop Marti. They made an offer. They tried to give them another, par another parish at the other, at the other end of Paris, uh, north side of Paris, which was dingy, too small, 
the people rejected it. And um, <laughs> long story short, they're still there to this day. <laughs> the, tra the traditionalists who took over are still in charge of St. Nicholas du Chardonnay because, no, as I said, no politician will touch this with a 10-foot pole in Paris. And so they got away with this <laughs> because of, ironically, uh, France's modern secularist regime. And in fact, to this day, by the way, uh, this, that ch not just that church in Paris, but Paris, France, actually has the biggest Latin mass community uh, all taken all t together of any, any city in, in France. There's several thousand people a week show up for mass <laughs> in Paris at places like Saint-Nicolas-du-Jardinet. And as you can tell, I'm laughing. This is a kind of a funny story. This is a story, by the way, if you, you familiarize yourself with traditionalist literature, they love telling it for obvious reasons. Uh, after having been treated so badly in the 1970s, it's kind of a fun one for them. But it gives you an idea of how crazy, we've already talked about the craziness on the sort of other side of a liturgical world, and we know there are crazy things going on in the theological world. Things are crazy, uh, definitely, definitely, on the French side of things. In France, <clears throat> on the traditionalist side. And this brings us finally to, to the major, of course, figure, major event that happens here, of course, the founding of the Society of St. Pius X. And Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, we need to talk about who he is for a moment un to understand how this happens and what happens. But some people have a, a they have a, a misunderstanding, I think, based on false information. But uh, Lefebvre was from northern France, born in a place called, I think it's Tourcoing, I think is how you pronounce it. I apologize if any French listeners are listening to this. I apologize for butchering your gorgeously beautiful language. Please forgive me. Uh, Turquois, I think it's north, near the border with Belgium, uh, near the city of Lille. And he came from a deeply, deeply pious family, very old Catholic family in the region. His father was a factory owner who, just get an idea what kind of family this is, during World War II, he risked his life to rescue prisoners of war. Excuse me, World War I. He rescued prisoners of war from German prison camps. And all of his children, all of his father's children, including Marcel, became, well, they, they, his four siblings became members of religious orders. They all became missionaries. And in fact, this is, as you're going to see, his big, this is what he does for the church for most of his life, actually. Uh, Marcel Lefebvre. And so he came from, and I also mentioned his father was a, a factory owner. He was a, a, one of these... <clears throat> He was a Catholic, obviously a very pious Catholic. He helped form these sort of Catholic worker associations, I guess. I don't know how to, how to put it exactly, up in northern, uh, in northern France. Again, these were supposed to be alternatives to unions because the church didn't like it at that point. They thought they, were, they generated too much class conflict. But he, he did things for his workers. He was a very conscientious man, his, his father. He was, not, he was not a political person in that regard. And this goes along with his son. Uh, he goes to, to Rome for seminary, and he'll go to the French seminary in Rome, which is one of the most ultramontane in Rome, if you know what that word means. Ultramontane is a term in the 19th century for people who take a really, 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 really exalted view of papal authority. I would say an exaggerated view of papal authority, but that's what this, you know, in this period, good, pious Catholics, everything the Pope said was perfect. Not only can he not err in terms of his infallibility, and this is very much ingrained in his mind, by the way, Marcel Lefebvre, 
you can always trust things coming from Rome because it's it of course is the is the guardian tradition. And he always values, even after events of the 1970s and 80s, does Marcel Lefebvre, when he calls Romanitas. Again, this idea that Rome is the center of things, and Rome is how you know, if it's Roman, it's good. If it's Roman, it's reliable. And in fact, he, his, uh, he at the seminary there, and this is sometimes brought up against him uh, as an association, sort of guilt by association, um, he's very devoted to the seminary director, the original seminary director of uh, um, that seminary when he gets there, a man named uh, Floche, I think his name, first name's Henry Lafloche, Floche, uh, F-L-O-C-H, uh, who eventually gets dismissed in 1927 because, if you recall, he's a, he, was a, he, he was a big supporter of Action Francaise, that political organization that Pius XI condemned. And so even though uh, Lafloche was ready to submit, he kicked him out. Uh, Lafloche was definitely a supporter of Marat, and again, sometimes people will project this onto Lefebvre. For the most part, as far as I can tell, he has not much to do with secular politics, really, at any point in his life. Uh, his big inspiration really are the encyclicals of people like Pius XI, Leo XIII. Uh, Lefebvre and most of, his, most of his immediate clerical followers are inspired by things like the social kingship of Christ. They're inspired by bringing the theological view of the world to bear on social and political questions. Not necessarily any purely political organization. And this is something, uh, there's an um, uh, uh, academic in England, one of the few, there's been almost nothing written on uh, the traditionalist movement in the Catholic Church by actual academics. One gentleman, a man named Brian Sutlow, uh, wrote a paper a few years ago when the SSPX was having discussions with Rome, with, uh, with Pope Francis, about coming back into commu full communion. And he, he interviewed several members, high-ranking members of the SSPX, and they all pretty much said that that's what motivates them. They're, but for the most part, most of them are not necessarily um, aligned with a political group. And I say this because you will get some time to times some SSPX priests, occasionally bishops, you know, doing things with the Front National in France. But there really isn't, for the most part, as I can see, any intrinsic connection between them. Uh, definitely not Lefebvre. Uh, he, is, he is about theology, first, second, and third, as far as I can tell. In any event, when he becomes, when he's ordained a priest in the late 1920s, uh, he decides to become a missionary in Africa, and he goes to Africa. And for the next, basically, 30 years of his life, for the most part, he'll come back to France for several times for various reasons. He'll spend the next 30 years of his life in what is today uh, places like Gabon and Senegal, and he will be a highly, highly successful missionary. Uh, sometimes, this is, some, uh, 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 this is a, beside the point, but sometimes people, when they talk about the great growth of the church in the 20th century, 20th and 21st centuries in Africa, they sometimes attribute this to the Second Vatican Council. Well, this is totally false. Almost most of the, big mission, most of the great missionary endeavors took place before the council uh, by people like Marcel Lefebvre, and he is known for this. He's known as a great missionary. Uh, he founded dioceses, he founded seminaries and schools, he ordained a bunch of bishops in Africa. Uh, for a long time there, he was beloved by people in Africa. Uh, in 1996, five years after his death, uh, the, uh, the nation of Gabon actually issued a set of commemorative stamps featuring Lefebvre, if you can imagine. Uh, in fact, according to Father Louis Boyer, uh, who was a French priest involved in the Second Vatican Council, uh, wrote in 1978 that it was uh, the efforts of African bishops, uh, many of whom he'd ordained, that later on when he 
comes into conflict with Rome that keep him from being excommunicated initially. Uh, the bishop people in Africa are deeply loyal to Marcel Lefebvre because of his, his efforts. And lest you doubt, uh, I don't know who's listening to this, obviously, probably traditionalists, but if you're a conservative Catholic who I, and I know some who are, call themselves some conservatives who really hate the SSPX and they hate Lefebvre, they think of them as being disobedient and all those other things. No one, and I mean no one, even his, some of his bitterest enemies ever doubted what a uh, devout uh, person of integrity he was. To give you an example, if you recall uh, the last episode, I talked about Archbishop Benelli, the sostituto of the Secretary of State, and how he dumped all over poor Eric de Saventham in his letter. Well, when they met in 1976, uh, Benelli with de Saventham and his wife, his wife a uh, asked about uh, Marcel Lefebvre, because at that point their meeting, he'd already been suspended from the priesthood. And um, Benelli, who, as you know, is no sweetheart, is sort of the, the, the archetypal, awful functionary, had this to say about Marcel Lefebvre after he'd been suspended from the priesthood. This is Archbishop Benelli, quote, I retain, I shall retain forever a profound admiration for the man of God, the man of the church, the man of prayer, the giant missionary, which is Monsignor Lefebvre, unquote. That's high praise from someone who, trust me, did not like Marcel Lefebvre at all and uh, was part of the reason why he gets in trouble. Um, the point is that he is, he is a, a kind of a giant of the pre-Vatican II church. And widely respected, uh, a genuinely, as far as I can tell from reading his works and everything, a fairly humble guy, self-effacing, meek, all these other sorts of things. In any case, he finally comes back from Africa in the late 1950s, and he's made the superior general of the Holy Ghost Fathers, the missionary order in Africa. And he goes on, he plays a role in Vatican II, I won't go into this, he's part of that conservative group that winds up uh, pushing back against progressives at the council. And as I mentioned in the last episode, initially he was not necessarily opposed even before the council, but even after it, he was not necessarily, you know, off-put by what it had done. He'd signed all the decrees, basically. And even as late as 1965, he was still thinking the council and the reforms might be a good thing. What happens is that all of a sudden he starts getting, you know, his news from uh, his confreres in places like Africa, places across France, about what's going on, and he's alarmed by all the sort of craziness that is going on. And in fact, in 1966, Cardinal Ottaviani, the uh, head of the CDF, the former head of the CDF, sends a letter to all the bishops of the, of the world talking about errors in the liturgy and errors of theology being spread around. 1966, of course, is the year of the Dutch Catechism when they publish this catechism, which seems to call into question things like the virgin birth and stuff like this. And Archbishop wrote a letter to him, back to him, basically uh, for the first time apparently in, 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 uh, in private, uh, voicing concerns about the council that basically the council, he's beginning to grow toward a position that the council has done something wrong, that it is, uh, that it is basically a cause of some of these things. And his concerns will begin to grow, such that uh, a year later, uh, rather than go through all the reforms of his, of his order, he's still fairly young, 
1967, he decides to re resign as Superior General of the Holy Ghost Fathers and retire. Uh, his, his, his goal is basically to go off on the countryside. He can continue saying Mass in the way he likes and leave all the craziness behind. What happens is he gets approached by some seminarians in 1969, French seminarians who uh, are off-put by what's going on in seminaries across France and the rest of the Western Church. And if you don't know, uh, well, we'll get to this in a second. We'll talk about it, but things are kind of going crazy. And they ask him to give him give them formation. And so, in 1969, he looks into starting a what amounts to a sort of one-year training course for for seminarians before they go on to university. And eventually, they look for a place. They find it in a place called Icon in Switzerland. And uh, and it's founded in 1970. Excuse me. This uh, sort of pre-seminary seminary. Uh, eventually, he gets the idea a year later to create a, a secular institute. You can do this in canon law. He's a bishop, but he, he didn't have a, a diocese anymore. He had been a missionary bishop. So he can't do this, canonically speaking, so he can't have his own seminary, but he can't have, his, he can't have an institute like this. So he forms in 1970 the, uh, the Society of St. Pius X. And he begins teaching. Uh, he gets teachers from other places, but he begins teaching students. And long story short, you, you can kind of guess this, being the capable person that he was. You don't be a, a successful missionary as he was without doing it. Within four years, Lefebvre had 104 students and 95 seminaries at Icone. Had ordained 12 priests, had founded an order of sisters, uh, had, they, had lay, they had brothers, uh, lay oblates, and had already uh, branched out into four different countries. Switzerland, uh, the UK, the US, and Italy. In other words, it blossomed overnight. <clears throat> By 1974, according to his biographer, uh, one in seven French seminarians, or seminarians from France, were going to a comb. As we're going to see, this is going to be a problem that gets him in trouble. By the end of 1970, uh, and I say this because by the, at the end of 1970, the, sem the seminary had already, already ceased to celebrate the new Mass. Because by this point, Lefebvre has gone to the, uh, think about the liturgy. What he thinks about the council is that, as far as I'm aware, he never denies their validity uh, of the, or call it a heretical. But he thinks that the new mass, uh, I'm quoting here, quote, leads slowly to heresy. He thinks it's too easy to abuse. And so he basically stops doing it altogether by the end of 1970. And so he has this increasing, you know, suspicion of the council. But basically, he's just doing at this point what he has always done. Now, you know, I'll step back here for a second and talk a little bit about what is going on in France around the time all this is going on. And in the late 1970s, when all this uh, broke out, <clears throat> 1978, Father Boulay was a theologian who uh, was influential prior to the council and during the council as a paratus and was on the liturgical committee that created the new mass, wrote an article about this, this whole period, which it doesn't, doesn't exculpate Marcel Lefebvre, but it puts things from his perspective and talks about what, uh, what's going on uh, uh, in France. And basically what's going on in France is that the seminaries are all emptying out. Things are collapsing, basically. And uh, just, yeah, I'll read, it's a passage from his, his, uh, his, uh, his article here, it's worth uh, noting. 
The first thing that seems to have caught his attention, he means Lefebvre's, is the nearly instantaneous degradation of French seminaries as well as clergy recruitment and formation. To realize what the situation was, one must remember that a French-born congregation specialized in that sort of work had always until then refused the slightest adaptation of its 17th century customs. Furthermore, it would be an understatement to say that the competent Roman authority encouraged it in this. A few years before the council, one of my friends, an English priest who had devoted his life to this work, had had the misfortune of publishing some criticisms of the state of affairs in a French clerical journal. Uh, the superiors of this congregation denounced him, and the wrath of Rome soon destroyed his career and besmirched his irreproachable character, ultimately confining him to a tiny suburban Paris that he was never to leave. Yet as soon as the council came to an end, this congregation's seminaries, particularly in France but elsewhere too, believed that they had to give in at the first sign of revolution. <laughs> the speed with which they did so is matched only by their former resistance to the slightest reform. Encounters replaced lectures. The most private of devotional lives gave way to political activism without the slightest transition, and the most conformist ritualism gave way to absurd improvisations. I'll pass over more serious uh, things yet, which were to lead to one of the even most liberal prelates of the United States to withdraw his seminarians from this congregation after a detailed investigation with irrefutable findings. In keeping with this example, one must admit that it was soon an impression of a total free-for-all in all of our seminaries. After stifling authoritarianism and a sickening rosewater sort of piety, unbridled demagoguery and total chaos, if not cynical impiety, took over. From that point, French bishops were sent substantial complaints and respectful yet worried, if not justifiably indignant, observations. Then also there appeared, on the part of those whom they had put in charge in this field, two types of response which were to increase and multiply in all other fields. Either, quote, the situation is not as critical as you think, unquote, or it will pass, and anyway, nothing can be done about it, unquote. In fact, under pretext of collegiality, the flight of responsibilities had begun, and under pretext, pretext of, quote, setting up democratic structures, unquote, little Soviets arose, taking advantage of the authorities' sudden fear of seeming authoritarian to tyrannize the general run of the clergy and faithful behind their back. Thus... Uh, Father Boyer on the situation in France. In other words, all hell broke loose. And so nobody was doing anything. And so this is what Marcel Lefebvre is responding to. I mention this because uh, his seminary begins to attract attention with all those members coming into it. In particular, the number of French seminarians coming to his, coming to his uh, seminary from France worried the French episcopate. Partly because their numbers, I, mean, I think within a couple of years, the number of uh, seminarians they ordained went from like 270 down to 130, I think within two years. Other words, their seminaries are being bled dry, and now they're all going over to Marcel Lefebvre, who, of course, is a very traditional, is very much a traditionalist. The curriculum he teaches at Econ, of course, is very traditional, very conservative. As you can guess, the bishops of France in 1974 are very progressive. So what happens is, and it's not clear exactly what happens, the, uh, the assumption, I think Boyer assumes this, other people, the defenders of Lefebvre assume this, is that the French bishops want, um, the French bishops begin uh, to try to basically seem to be scheming to get rid of him. And what happens is the, the um, uh, some cardinals, a commission is formed 
in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Rome in 1974 to discuss the Society of St. Pius X. And this commission of three cardinals decides that, an, uh, that, the, uh, that uh, the Society of uh, St. Pius X needs to have an apostolic visitation take place to check out and see whether its, you know, its curriculum is up to you know, post-conciliar standards and all this stuff. And so the visitation takes place in November of 1974. And what happens there is that the two visitors go to the seminary. And what happens is they, they do a thorough you know, investigation. They talk to all the seminarians, all the teachers, and Marcel Lefebvre. And in the course of this, uh, they managed to shock some of the seminarians there. They shocked them by, according to the, the Count of Lefebvre, when the seminarians get to talking to these uh, people from Rome, they, they uh, scandalized by, their, by, uh, by things uh, like, um, for example, saying to, to, the, to, the, to the, uh, the seminarians that they thought married clergy uh, would be inevitable. They, they uh, claimed they did not believe in immutable truth. And they apparently also expressed doubts concerning the, concerning the uh, physical nature of the resurrection. And so what happened, of course, after this is, well, this, of course, shocked Lefebvre. And it's kind of, it's kind of not terribly clear. Uh, he, was, he was scandalized by this, but it, this is my take on this. Apparently what uh, drew him to do what he did next was his seminarians flipped out. And if you don't know, a lot of people coming to, again, coming to Lefebvre were fleeing the insanity of everything else in the church at the time. Some of these guys were really, if you think of Marcel Lefebvre being, as being extreme, trust me, some of his followers <laughs> were really kind of out and they were very, I would say, fragile in little ways. And they flipped out. And so to calm them down, he issued a declaration to them. He wrote this up, read it to them. And I'm going to read parts of this because it's important because he, this is what gets him in trouble, actually. I'll read the beginning of it. I'll give you a sense of where this is going because they were so freaked out. But again, remember now what, where Lefebvre's been trained in, in his mind, the way he talks, you know, Rome is always right. Rome is always trustworthy. Well, here come these two, these two apostolic visit, visitors from Rome talking, you know, heresy to them. So this is the declaration of, of uh, November 21st, 1974 of Marcel Lefebvre. We hold firmly with all our heart and with all our mind to Catholic Rome, guardian of the Catholic faith, and of the traditions necessary to the maintenance of this faith, to the eternal Rome, mistress of wisdom and truth. The whole idea of an eternal Rome, by the way, will be very, very prominent in Marcel Lefebvre's thinking. We refuse, on the other hand, and have always refused, to follow the Rome of neo-modernist and neo-Protestant tendencies, which became clearly manifest during the Second Vatican Council and after the Council and all the reforms which issued from it. In effect, all these reforms have contributed and continue to contribute to the destruction of the Church, to the ruin of the priesthood, to the abolition of the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacraments, to the disappearance of the religious life, and to a naturalistic and Teilhardian, he means Teilhard de Chardin, Education in the universities, in the seminaries, in catechetics. An education deriving from liberalism and Protestantism, which had been condemned many times by the solemn magisterium of the church. No authority, not even the highest authority in the hierarchy, can compel us to abandon or to diminish our Catholic faith, so clearly expressed and professed by the church's magisterium for 19 centuries. 
And I'll, I'm going to stop. I'll read one last quotation here because he goes on the same vein for the rest of this. But one thing he does say right here, important for the litur liturgy especially, he says, it is impossible to profoundly modify the lex orandi, the law of prayer, liturgy, without modifying the lex credendi, the law of belief. To the new mass, there corresponds the new catechism, the new priesthood, the new seminaries, the new universities, the charismatic church, quote-unquote, Pentecostalism, all of them opposed to orthodoxy and the never-changing magisterium. Again, if you're wondering why, uh, sometimes you will hear traditionalists, rad-trads, talk about the new church, the conciliar church, all this stuff, as if it was all these other sorts of things. And that's effectively what he's... He doesn't come out and say that, necessarily. But you have to understand what's going on in the 1970s. You have a brand new liturgy, which doesn't look Catholic to people like Lefebvre, so different from what preceded it. You have seminaries which have become hotbeds of heresy. That's not his imagination. You have new catechisms being issued by Episcopal conferences, which are full of things that are <laughs> contrary to the Catholic faith. You have... He says a new priesthood. All these things, the things he's talking about are absolutely, for the most part, correct. Obviously, I have a different view on the charismatic movement, but that's a different story. You can understand why they freak out. Because to them, the hierarchy, the bishops, they're acting like there is a new church. <laughs> and so if this is when they have to understand. Again, and, and just remember now, the confusion that reigns in all this. In fact, in October of 1974, before that visitation, um, Lefebvre complained in a talk to one of his one of his talks that, you know, uh, he talked about quote a, a series of conflicting orders, circular circulars, constitutions, and orchestrated or manipulated pastoral letters. From what authority did they come? From the Holy See? From the Council? From commissions? From Episcopal conferences? We don't really know. Uh, it really was, and to this day, by the way, it's not clear where, who, you know, who, who made all the post-conciliar reforms happen. Was that, the, did the council direct that? Did the Pope do that? Is it just the bishops, the bishops' conferences? Is it just, who is, it, it, this is that confusing then. And we're not much better today. People are still arguing over, you know, was the liturgical reform that actually happened what the council wanted? I don't think it is. Others, others say no, of course. You know, what did the council mean in its documents? We still fight over that. So that is the confusion into which, again, it's not just Marcel Lefebvre. Uh, yeah, my impression, this is me reading into what his defenders have said about this. It seemed like he was doing this partly to, you know, partly for his own sake, but partly to keep his own people on side because they went to him because they thought he'd be a rock of stability. And so they needed to see him, I guess, standing up to this or something. In any event, this was a private declaration, not intended for publication. Naturally, he gave it to some friends who published it <laughs> in early 1975. And uh, this, uh, well, I should say even before the end of 1974, the French bishops have already issued a statement um, saying the old rite is no longer allowed, which is pretty clearly aimed at Ecole at that point. So what happens in 1975 uh, this commission meets in, in early January of 1975 and basically decides that the, the seminary needs to go <clears throat> at Ecom. And 
what happens is they they invite and what happens next by the way is a matter of dispute because we'll see in a moment they invite Marcel Lefebvre to come to Rome to talk about the seminary and talk about the report that, that visitors gave to his, his seminary which by the way those two visitors the ones who were spouting quasi-heretical sounding stuff gave Icon a a glowing report. They had almost nothing bad to say about it. And in fact, as you're going to see, that report gets sort of left behind in all this, and they don't. The the commission that condemns him never mentions it again. When he gets to Rome, in 1975, he immediately starts being interrogated by these by these cardinals, and effectively they tell him he's he's on trial for for having, and this is the phrase they're going to use against him is, uh, because his declaration is uh, opposed to the council and the pope. Now, you heard what I read. He does say some harsh things about the council. He doesn't come out and say it's heretical. He doesn't come out and say it's invalid. He doesn't come out and say the liturgy is invalid. What he says is they, they are tending toward these things. They're becoming a, a, you know, a, a contributor to these things. And he admitted, by the way, that he, he wrote that in haste and, in, and it, it, when he was upset. But he tells them in this in this back and forth, I, 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 that's basically what I believe. And so they use that declaration as an excuse to basically condemn the order, condemn the society and order it to be dissolved. Now, I mention this because this suppression of the society, uh, his defenders challenge this for a couple of reasons. One is that it's not known. I mean, they tell him that the Pope has set up this commission. They asked for, his, his canon lawyer asked for documentation to this effect. They never gave it to them um, because they denied his appeal when he was asking for this. But they told him that, that politics basically approved of it after the fact, but they never saw any uh, evidence of this. And I say this because I don't know canon law whatsoever. I'm not going to go into this in much detail. There, there is some hanky-sounding stuff about this. Uh, and they claim that this, is, this whole thing is canonically illegal. I have no idea. I, I don't... I don't I don't know canon law. It does sound like a setup to me, however, um, uh, because virtually everybody involved in the Vatican, including Paul VI, over the next couple of years, as there's this back and forth, increasingly public back and forth in letters, in press conferences and stuff like this, between the Pope and Lefebvre, they, his interlocutors in Rome all use the same language. Uh, he's uh, guilty of opposition to the, the council, opposition to the post-conciliar reforms, and to the will of the Pope. And they cite, of course, his declaration. They never specify what's wrong with the declaration. They don't specify which points are heretical or anything like that. They just say he's opposed to the council, opposed to the Pope, opposed to the reforms. Therefore, the society has to be shut down. Lefebvre asked them, said, okay, that's fine. This is my declaration. You can just discipline me, but leave the society alone. No, they said no. That seems pretty clear to me, the whole point of this, is that, at least to me, uh, again, I can't say this for a fact, but that's my reading of it. The French bishops were embarrassed uh, by the fact of his success, had ideological differences with him. They're progressives. He's not. And they, uh, the Secretary of State, uh, Cardinal Viol, was Frenchman, progressive, was friends with Paul VI, sounds like they sort of sicked, they sort of convinced Paul VI that he was just trying to flout his authority. And so they had this back and forth over the next couple of years, which I won't go this into much detail, where this is basically where it, where it winds up. 
Paul VI, for example, sends a letter after Lefebvre um, ordains another round of priests in 1975, um, rebuking him for rejecting, and I'm quoting here, quote, a council such as the Second Vatican Council, which has no less authority, which in certain respects is even more important than that of Nicaea. And if you're wondering what's going on here, of course, as I've said before, again, the liturgical reforms are Paul VI reforms. Even if you don't agree with me that the, the council didn't call for anything like this, definitely the suppression of the old mass is not called for by, by the council. Paul VI totally identifies his papacy with two things, the council and the liturgical reform. That's his council. That's his liturgy. And he takes any criticism of it personally. And what happens is, the, if you have to, I'll, I'll give you some of the rhetoric here in a moment, other rhetoric. Rome puts so much emphasis, I think, because Paul VI wants it this way, on the authority of the council. It sounds like that basically the, the entire authority of the church depends on the council and the pope's authority alone. It really is striking. Because what Marcel Lefebvre's response to this is basically, what am I doing wrong? I'm doing the exact same thing I'd always done before the council. I'm forming priests in the same way I always have. I'm saying the same liturgy. Why are these things... I'm, I'm paraphrasing. He says a lot of other things. And he'll become more extreme, by the way, over time. He will. Don't get me wrong. But in essence, his, his complaint is the same, of, same as Gomar de Pau's. Why is what I was doing before the council now wrong? And in fact, I think this is why he doesn't back down, actually. Because, <clears throat> because effectively what, what the people are telling him, and there's not just the French bishops, the Swiss bishops who are the ones he was actually under the authority of because the cones in Switzerland, all intimate to him that the problem with him is basically that he's, you know, he's not getting on board with a new order of things. I'll give you one, one last example. Because what happens, the, the story is pretty short. He finally gets a meeting with Paul VI. I won't go through this in too much detail. This is already too long an episode. But there's this really emotional meeting. They knew each other, by the way. Paul VI and Marcel Lefebvre knew each other for years. Uh, you can read his account of it online if you can find it, uh, Marcel Lefebvre's account, where they're, you can tell they're talking past each other. And it's basically, Marcel Lefebvre says at one point to him, why can't we just have this, what he calls, experiment of tradition? Why can't... You know, we're all about pluralism today in the post-conciliar church. Why, can, why is there no space for tradition here? And Paul VI says the same thing over and over, basically. Nope, the council says so, I say so, you got to do it. You're just being disobedient. And they're both, by the way, very sincere. It's a really moving, in some ways, depressing. It's kind of sad, uh, in a way. Uh, sad episode. Because the next year, they, they, they order him, by the way, to stop ordaining, to shut the... Which he, 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 but long story short, he refuses. Again, he thinks what he's doing is consonant with the tradition of the church. He doesn't see what's wrong with it. And so in 1976, and this is a, a, thing, a thing he increasingly does, he does this on camera. He has news people there. He becomes kind of a television star, does uh, Archbishop Lefebvre. He ordains another round of, um, uh, of uh, priests in 1976, and it's then that Paul VI actually suspends him uh, 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 from, uh, officially from the priesthood. Uh, suspends him ad divinis, which is a, a canonical term basically saying his, all of his powers as priests are suspended that same year. 
And again, just to give you another uh, just, uh, other idea of what's going on here, again, uh, shortly before the ordinations, Archbishop Benelli sent for a letter a couple days before he, uh, the ordinations. They took place on uh, June 29th, the Feast of uh, St. Peter and Paul. And Benelli sent him a letter saying that his priests needed to be formed to be faithful, quote, to the conciliar church. And again, you sometimes hear that, that phrase bandied about by traditionalists in a really uncharitable way, which is sometimes they get, they get accused of being schismatics. That's not their imagination. <laughs> People in the 1970s were talking like that in Rome. So, again, I'm not excusing anything Marcella Fenef did. Disobedience is not a virtue. But this whole thing stinks to high heaven, to be honest with you. This whole initial phase here, anyway. I'll wrap this up real quickly. Um, two years later, Paul VI dies. Uh, John Paul II, John Paul I, I should say, is elected. Uh, he dies after 33 days. And then John Paul II is elected in 1978. At that point, uh, Marcel Lefebvre is still suspended, and things are in limbo. I'm not going to give too much commentary here, but I'm going to say at this point, if you haven't gotten my read on this, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Marcel Lefebvre in this situation. Yes, it's wrong to disobey the Pope, but I think the whole thing, basically, I think the whole drive to shut his society, shut his uh, seminary down was wrong. I think that what happened was uh, Paul VI let, let basically people who were his friends, people he trusted, um, convince him that this was a bigger deal than it was. I really do. Uh, you know, I just don't know what harm he was doing at his seminary. Again, if he had not been, if they had not called that visitation down, and again, you can say he walked into it. If he'd been more, if he'd been more temperate in his language, perhaps. But again, look at it from his perspective. What they basically wanted him to admit was, what you're doing at the seminary is wrong, even though you're just doing things the way you always have done them. And now, again, sometimes in church history, by the way, you know, that happens when the church will define a dogma which will change things fairly quickly. You know, before the first Vatican Council in 1970, you could deny, get away with denying the dogma of papal infallibility had not been formally, solemnly declared as a dogma. Immediately after that, it's, 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 you know, you're booted out of the church for that. The problem with appealing to the Second Vatican Council for this sort of thing, unfortunately, is that it was not supposed to be a dogmatic council. What new dogmatic teachings did it even, you know, entail? Does it entail any new things? And do those new, new teachings invalidate everything that went before? Does the new liturgy invalidate the old one? <laughs> These are the things that the church has never really sorted out. And as you can kind of see, I want to leave you on this note. Again, you can say what you want. You can say Marcel Lefebvre deserved his fate. That's fine. I'm telling you what Paul VI did was wrong. <laughs> Sorry, it's wrong. Uh, if you think what he did was bad, he, you know, he directly disobeyed a pope. That's true. Ask yourself, if Marcel Lefebvre had written a book denying the doctrine of papal infallibility, denying the infallibility of the church, do you think that deserve, you know, suspension, excommunication? Okay, if disobeying the Pope in the, 
disciplinary, disciplinary matters is reason for suspension. That should be excommunication, right? I bring up that example because it actually happened. In 1970, Hans Kung, sort of a star progressive theologian coming out of the Second Vatican Council, published a book called Infallibility, which denied, openly rejected, the doctrine of papal infallibility and, the, and any infallibility for the church as a whole. He basically denied that the Holy Ghost has guided the church throughout history. Dogmas, that, that by the way, dogma of papal infallibility, promulgated by Vatican I, reaffirmed by Vatican II. Paul VI did nothing to Hans Kuhn. In fact, when John Paul II gets into uh, the papacy, he will discipline Hans Kuhn. He'll remove his license to teach Catholic theology. But that's it. He's never suspended. He never changes his views. He's never excommunicated. He works in a Catholic university for the rest of his life. Dies a Catholic in good standing. And this is the, one of the big complaints of the traditionalists. Why the discrepancy? If there's no new church, <laughs> if you're not trying to change the doctrines of the church and get rid of the old and replace it with something new, why are you doing things like this? And again, these reformers in the 1970s seemed to treat the new liturgy as if it were sort of the new ritual of a, of a new faith in some ways. Again, they never say that openly. And I'm, 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 I have no idea, by the way, what the motivations are of the people involved in this. I don't want to cast aspersions too widely. And in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure, by the way, when I mentioned the French bishops, I'm pretty sure embarrassment is, is maybe the biggest motive for them. Marcel Lefebvre was making them look bad. You know what bishops don't like? Looking bad in public. And trust me, most of the bishops in France at that point were a bunch of time-serving non-entities. And Marcel Lefebvre, with his dynamism and his, his charisma, made them look bad. That's as much, if not more, of a factor than the whole ideological thing. But, not asking you to agree with anything, but you see it from the perspective of Marcel Lefebvre and his followers... And look, my perspective as a, a secular historian is that this is, this is just, you know, in a time when, again, Paul VI, you know, his authority is being flouted everywhere in the church. I'm not, I don't have, I have some sympathy with Paul VI. I didn't say, I didn't mean to, I'm not saying he's the worst person ever. I do think he was a terrible pope, by the way, in terms of his governance of the church. He never did anything to try to rein in the progressive side of the ledger. But I can understand why he would be offended by what uh, Marcel Lefebvre did. But this, for all the world, looks like a pope who feels like his authority is slipping away from him. He wants to put his foot down. He's afraid of the reaction from the progressive side. Why? Because they're a lot more powerful than the church. Uh, they can make his life miserable. Marcel Lefebvre can't. In other words, this looks like a, a, an act of punching down on a, 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 a powerless minority. Which, of course, is what, uh, quite frankly, uh, the recent motu proprio looks like to me. Traditionalist um, custodius. It looks like punching down uh, on a minority in the church to please a faction within the church. I don't know that for a fact. But it's what it looks like to me. And again, and again, let me be clear. When I say simply with Paul VI, the poor man, he was a weak person. 
I've had my say. You can look at my. You can listen to my talk on Humanae Vitae for my take on his personality. But Paul, poor Paul VI died. Had a very sad end to his life. Um, just to finish up here, if you don't know, 1978, he had a former student of his, Paul VI did, named Aldo Moro, was a politician, was head of the Christian Democratic Party in Italy. And Aldo Moro had this grand scheme. He wanted to have this grand alliance between his Christian Democratic Party, which is kind of like a centrist party, with, I guess, Catholic parties in the Italian legislature, Italian parliament. And the communists in Italy didn't like this. And the communists in Italy back in the 1970s were really violent. Uh, at least their, their extreme groups were. And one of these, these uh, groups was called the Red Brigades, kidnapped Aldo Moro in 1978, murdered him, and then dumped his body on the doorstep of the Christian Democratic Party headquarters in Rome. And this apparently broke uh, Paul VI. He, uh, he officiated at his funeral in St. Peter's Square, and supposedly, so the story goes, when he was going through the, the, the mass, he let out a, a cry of despair in the middle of it. Uh, he was totally broken by this, was uh, Papa Montini. And he died a few months later. I, 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 I do have sympathy with Paul VI. He was going through a lot. Having said all that, a lot of this post-conciliar post chaos, especially with the liturgy, he bears a, a, a large share of the responsibility. Again, if he didn't try to start a new liturgy, if he didn't push all these reforms at once in such a quick manner, a lot of the stuff would have never happened. If he had, had not let himself be persuaded by one side of an issue like this to do this, this wouldn't have happened. He, he bears some responsibility for this. One last note, one last thing I'll let you guys go. The irony of all this, when he was suspended in 1976, there was basically only one person in the Curia left defending Marcel Lefebvre and urging, according to his biographer, urging him to uh, use the medicine of mercy instead of suspending him. Uh, in, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but because his thinking was this person that uh, if, you make, if you push him too far, it'll make a break that can't be healed. Of all people, the one person arguing uh, for him not to do this was Annabal Bunini. Can you imagine? Annabal Bunini, the great Satan of the traditionalist movement, intervened on behalf of Marcel Lefebvre. And, and he was correct, by the way. He was correct. Uh, by suspending him, you kind of, he kind of started Lefebvre on the path to you know, creating a, well, essentially a separate church today. Um, uh, Bonini was right, and I, I don't know why I did it. Uh, I think, I think maybe in the back of his mind, even though they were, again, uh, obviously opposed in a lot of things. Whatever else you can say about Annabelle Bonini, his ideas were terrible. What he did was terrible. I think he genuinely cared about the liturgy, and I think that's probably what's in the back of his mind. That and because Lefebvre, again, even his even his opponents recognized what kind of person he was. Um, but at the time. Again, you know, you invoke the Pope's authority, there's almost no question, you know, uh, for... And that must have been another thing that, that made Paul VI uh, hurt by this, is that he, you know, uh, Marcel Lefebvre is a traditionalist who's, you know, big into papal authority. Well, why won't you obey then? 
you should really read the account of, of their meeting because they're just talking past each other the whole time. So, In any event, we're going to stop there. We'll pick up next time with the uh, papacy of, of John Paul II, and we'll talk about the various divisions that will open up in the traditionalist movement, and of course, you know how this goes, the story. Eventually, the uh, excommunication of Marcel Lefebvre and, his, uh, and some of the um, people in his movement, along with the establishment of, um, uh, as we'll see, a space for traditionalists uh, who love the old liturgy in the church, despite all that. So thank you all. Take care. For, uh, thanks for listening. Take care, and God bless. Uh, look out for the next episode soon.